We are continuing our series this morning, our Advent series, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, taking that uh, line that we sang earlier from the church's one foundation as our theme through this season. And uh, beginning, we, we looked at uh, the phrase, from heaven, and we saw the, the uniqueness and the divinity of Christ, that He has eternally been the Son of God, and that His entrance into the world was God becoming flesh. And then we looked at last week, He came, and we, we saw the purpose of Christ coming, that He came to die as a substitute on behalf of sinners. And this morning, we're picking up with the phrase, He sought her. And we're looking at how Jesus, as the Son of God and God Himself, seeks out sinners. He does not leave them to themselves and to their sin with a a vague hope that they might, through the sheer act of their will, come to Him. No, He is the Good Shepherd who seeks out His sheep. And so we're going to see that theme this morning as we go through the first couple of parables that we find here in Luke's Gospel in the 15th chapter. And so I want to read this morning from verses 1 to 10. Luke 15, verses 1 to 10. Luke writes there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him, that is Jesus, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders Rejoicing, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are humbled by these words. Because in these words, we see Your heart. We see the heart of our King. We see the heart of Jesus the promised Christ, that that You are a God who seeks out sinners. Those who have reached the depths of depravity, those who have come to an absolute end of themselves, those who are without any hope within the world. 
Those who are despised in the world. Those who are of a lowly status in the world. Father, these are the ones who You seek out to manifest Your wisdom through. And Lord, if there is anyone among us who knows You this morning, we can all attest to that very truth. We, Your people, were lost. And You sought us out and found us. And so Father, I pray that this morning we would see this character that You have in a new and a more profound way, that our hearts would be stirred up to love You even more. Father, I pray that Christ would become for us the great Shepherd who goes out into the open country and finds us His single sheep and rescues us and celebrates over having found us. Father, we pray for Your Spirit to illuminate Your Word for us this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure most of you are pretty familiar with the name John Newton. One of the classic and and most loved hymns of all time, Amazing Grace, was written by John Newton. And if not, uh, if not uh, very familiar with him, at least some of you are vaguely familiar with a part of his story. How he was a slave trader. And then he was saved by grace. And that grace radically transformed him. And he went from being a slave trader to being a pastor. And a pastor whose wisdom still to this day affects many throughout the world, and especially throughout Western Christianity, either through his hymns and the theology that he has taught the church through his hymns, or through the letters that we still have to this day that he wrote to to different people inquiring about different subjects and different matters of the Christian life. And we can read those letters and see the wisdom that was conveyed to them through it. What some of you may not know, however, is just how incredibly depraved this man really was. How wicked he was. Before Newton knew the saving grace of Christ, he had willfully abandoned all moral restraints. And when I say willful, I mean he set himself to do That very thing. This was his life's purpose for a certain amount of time before coming to know Christ was to cast off all restraints and indulge himself in every kind of sin he could muster. And in his early childhood years, his mother had been very consistent in training him in the ways of Christ, but she eventually died around the age of of six, and, and for a time, those seeds that she had planted kept Newton from plunging himself into sin, but he eventually reached the point where he no longer cared anymore about those seeds that had been planted. He no longer cared about that early childhood teaching. His conscience 
had become fully seared because of sin. For many of his early years, he was a sailor. And if you've ever heard the expression, cussing like a sailor, Newton was that sailor. His language, his mouth was beyond filthy. His speech earned him the reputation among his fellow sailors who were no representatives of righteousness themselves. He earned the reputation among them as being the most vile. They despised him. The people he sailed with abhorred him. And at one point in his life, the captain of the ship he worked on got so sick of him and got so sick of the, the exploits he was doing that he discharged him. He kicked him off of the boat. And when he did that, another captain who happened to know his father then hired him. And listen, and rather, at this point, rather than this being an opportunity for Newton to have a clean slate, Right? Got a new ship, got a new captain, got new people to build new relationships with, got a new opportunity to no longer have this filthy reputation. Rather than taking this opportunity to have a clean slate, he took it as an opportunity to take advantage of a crew who didn't know him. Newton later wrote of this particular occasion going from one ship to another, and he said this, I well remember that while I was passing from one ship to the other, I rejoiced in the exchange with this reflection, that I might now be as abandoned as I pleased, without any control. And from this time, I was exceedingly vile indeed. Little, if any, short of that animated description of an almost irrecoverable state which we have in 2 Peter 2.14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. Nay, I eagerly sought occasion, sometime to my own hazard and hurt. Newton reached a point in his life where even the outcasts, even the scum of society looked at him as lower than a worm. It's these kinds of people, a person like Newton, in this kind of state, that we find Jesus associating with in Luke 15 this morning. Luke says in verse 1, of chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. The tax collectors and sinners describe two kinds of people. On the one hand, you had those like the tax collectors who were known 
for being corrupt. That was their reputation. They were known for being greedy and taking advantage of people's money. But they also, they also had political clout. They had the power of the sword at their grasp. And because of that, they had the, the ability to take money from people using the power of the Roman Empire. And the freedom that they had as well. There were no checks and balances that they had. Allowed them to earn the reputation as being a people who majored in extorting others. And whether or not they were all guilty of corruption... They all had the reputation of being corrupt. On the other hand, you had the sinners. Not only the tax collectors, but the sinners. And here, sinner isn't a term that is describing all people everywhere, because as the Bible says, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is not a general term here. Sinner here is more of a derogatory term. It's an insult. It's a term that separates the religious elite from the non-religious and immoral people who were not the people of God. It referred to the pagan Gentiles, or the prostitutes, or the drunkards, or the thieves, or the adulterers, even lepers, or people with deformities and disabilities. Because the view was that if, if they had not sinned, these people who were lepers or who had disabilities, if they had not sinned, at least their parents had sinned. And they were being punished for that very reason. In our own day, the sinner, used derogatory, the sinner would be the drug dealer, the gangster, the prostitute. People who may have a little too many piercings or tattoos. People who wear dirty clothes and are missing some teeth. Or even those who wear head coverings and look like they're from the Middle East. Those are the sinners. Those are the people society has cast aside, who has fear of. Those are the people who scare us and make us hesitant to engage. That's the sinner here. And yet what we find happening in Luke 15 is that these tax collectors and sinners have heard Jesus. They have heard His message. They have seen His works and something has been stirred within their hearts and now they are beginning to follow after this Jesus. And in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes, the people who have it all together, the people who are seen in the temple on a regular basis, who offer prayers publicly for all to see, who give large sums of their money, in their eyes, this is not a good thing. This is not something someone like Jesus, who's at least recognized by the Pharisees as being a teacher, 
as being a Jewish rabbi, this is not a good look for him to have. To be associating with a people who look like this, whose reputation is one of filth and scum. And what is making matters even worse for these Pharisees is that Jesus is not turning them away. He's not sending them out. Jesus, again, a man who is recognized as being a rabbi, is welcoming these people to follow Him. He's even sharing meals with them. We can see here. Which means He's touching the same food that they're touching. These are a people who are recognized as being the lepers and the people who can make you unclean if you touch anything that they touch. And Jesus is dining with them. And He's sharing a meal with them. So Luke tells us here that these Pharisees and scribes began to grumble among themselves. And notice notice that language there. Grumbling. They began to grumble. It's not a coincidence that that Luke uses this word here to describe what's going on. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament right after the Exodus. The Israelites had just seen with their own eyes the infinite power and glory of God. They had just seen Him part the sea and destroy the Egyptian army that was seeking to kill them. God's love for them as a particular people had just been proven to them through this deliverance. And yet immediately after this event, immediately after the parting of the Red Sea, immediately after experiencing the salvation of the living God, we are told by Moses that they began to grumble against God because they didn't like the taste of the water they were drinking. They began to grumble. Luke is telling us here that these Pharisees were acting just like their ancestors. These Pharisees who in their own eyes had everything put together. They were the religious elite. They were the ones who had the reputation as being the righteous. And Luke is saying they are acting just like the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. They had the great Savior. The Christ whom they had been anticipating for generations, was right before them. They were seeing His powerful works and seeing His mercy towards sinners. And yet, they were grumbling. And So it's in this context, it's in this context where Jesus responds to their grumbling by telling them some parables. And the two that we're looking at this morning is the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. 
Both of these parables are making the same points. And these points reveal for us the heart of God towards a sinner. And therefore, they teach us how our hearts should be towards each other as sinners. But even more, how they should be towards those who have sinned against us. Or those who, because their lifestyles have been steeped in sin, give us some trepidation or some fear. Or even, maybe, a sense of self-righteousness. How should our hearts respond? Well, we see, we see how by looking at how God's heart responds to the sinner. And so the first point we see Jesus making here in these parables is that God, in His eyes, in His view, considers the sinner to be precious. God considers the sinner to be precious, which is to say He values them. In verse 4, Jesus asked the question, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And then in verse 8, he asked, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Jesus here is comparing the sinner in the first place to a sheep that a shepherd has lost. And when the shepherd discovers that his sheep is missing, he doesn't simply cut his losses and move on. He does something even more. When you cut your losses, right, that's, that's what you do when something that you have lost has little value to you. That's what you do when, for example, a button falls off your shirt and you lose it. You don't really care too much about it. You may look for a little bit, but overall, you can go to the store and you can buy another one for under a dollar. You don't worry. But a shepherd... His sheep, or a shepherd with his sheep, he considers them more than an animal. And he considers them more than just a means for him to get some financial gain. A shepherd has a relationship with his sheep. He names them. He knows their tendencies. He can tell when they're sick. He feeds them, he travels with them, he protects them and guards them from any predators that might seek to kill them. And so if one is lost, the shepherd doesn't simply move on. He goes after the sheep because his sheep is very precious to him. In the second place, Jesus compares the sinner to a lost coin or a drachma. A drachma was was a coin that had the value roughly of about a day's wages back then. And the woman here has a total of ten. So if she loses one, it's a major setback. 
I mean, it'd probably be the equivalent of someone today who lives paycheck to paycheck losing a paycheck. It's got value. And the coin here has value. And so we see here as well in the second example that Jesus seems to be heightening the value. He goes from losing one out of 99 to one out of 10. And the point he is driving home is that the sinner, the prostitute, that convict, or that person who has made their lives a habit of harming themselves and a habit of harming others, that sinner is not a person to despise. That sinner is a person to be loved. Because that sinner has value. And that sinner is the very kind of person that Jesus was willing to die for. And oh, what a sweet comfort that is to the soul that knows their need of a Savior. Sin places an unbearable amount of guilt on the conscience. It is the condemning voice that offers no hope ever. Its only promise is that you will be cast away into utter darkness because you have corrupted yourself beyond the pale of salvation. That is what sin says to the conscience. So it is indeed a very sweet comfort for the conscience to hear from the judge himself that you are in an age of grace. And that I consider you to be like a precious silver coin in my sight. Your blemishes are gone before me and you will shine as a mirror reflecting the sun. That is how God considers the sinner who draws near. To him. The sinner is precious. But the second point Jesus is making about God in these parables is that God actively pursues the sinner. God searches out the sinner. God is not a passive God. He is not sitting idly in heaven watching the world simply spin around on its axis. He does not simply hope against all hope that a sinner will in the power of his own strength and might and his own will decide to flee evil and turn to Jesus. There are some theological perspectives that teach this very notion of God. It's as if God has done everything He knows how to do to make salvation possible for people. He sent Jesus, His Son, into the world to die on a cross. He gave to the world prophets. He worked signs and wonders. Now, if only the sinners would repent. It's as if He just waits and hopes that one day, they'll come to their senses. 
It's as if God is simply passively waiting for an unknown, nameless person to repent. And once He does, God can wipe the nervous sweat off of His forehead. But Jesus teaches us here that God is not passively waiting on anything. God is not simply in heaven watching the world go round. He is not like a woman who has lost a silver coin and hopes that it might magically appear. God actively pursues the sinner. In the first parable, again in verse 4, the shepherd goes after the lost sheep until he finds it. And in the second parable, the woman lights a lamp and sweeps the house and seeks diligently until she finds the lost coin. There is energy being exerted here. There is a labor being uh, taken place here. And Jesus is saying, that is how God is toward these sinners who repent. He pursues them. And friends, if you are a believer this morning, it's not because there was something morally superior in you that other people didn't have. It's not because you had a heart that was slightly better and slightly more receptive to the Gospel than your unbelieving neighbors. It's not because your intellect was sharper and you were able to comprehend great theological truths that other people could not. You are a believer because God sought you out specifically. He put people in your life who would tell you of His glory. He put it in your mind to visit a local church where you would hear the preaching of the Gospel. He brought circumstances into your life. Death, illness, accidents that made you consider your mortality. He directed, this is a, this is a long shot, He directed even the mind of Gutenberg in the 15th century to invent the printing press so that over the course of generations, millions of Bibles would be printed and would find their way into your hands so that you would open it up, read it, and the Word of God would come alive by the power of the Spirit of God and you would experience the new birth. It's no coincidence that great inventions that we have benefited from even now happened. God orchestrates all these things for the good of His people. Your life is no coincidence. And your salvation is no cosmic accident. As Charles Wesley put it, When Christ died, your name was written on His hands. And He sought you out by His Spirit, and He made you His. You were lost in the darkness of sin, and 
He sought you out with the light of the lamp of His glory. And now you are found. That is how God saves. He pursues you. He pursues the sinner. Which leads us to this last point that Jesus makes in the parable, which is that God readily receives the sinner who repents. God readily receives the sinner who repents. In both parables, the result of the lost items being found is a celebration. There's rejoicing. And it's more than a private rejoicing. It's a corporate rejoicing. The shepherd wants all of his friends to know that he has found his sheep and to share in his joy. The woman wants to share her joy for finding the coin with her friends. And I think we can all relate to that reaction. We've all lost something valuable before. And when we lose it and other people are around, we tell them, I've lost something. I've lost my debit card. I've lost my keys. And sometimes even multiple people get involved in searching with us for that lost item. Or if they're not there physically, they're hoping that you find that lost Item, And then when you find it, you make sure to let everyone know, I found it! It was right in front of me the whole time. And there's relief. And there's joy. You don't ever find something, right, that you've lost and say, I wish I never found that. That wouldn't make much sense which is really the attitude that is being displayed by the Pharisees here. I wish those sinners had never been found. But you don't do that when you're looking for something of value. You find it and you rejoice. There's always some kind of joy present. And Jesus makes the point here, and it's a rebuke to the Pharisees, that when a sinner repents and he is found, That is the kind of joy God has and all of heaven has to an infinitely greater degree. Just so I tell you, he says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. But notice again, And this can't be missed. Notice again the kind of person heaven is rejoicing over. It's the sinner. The sinner. It's the kind of person whose entire life has been one habit of destruction after another. It's the kind of person who has brought shame to his or her family. It's the daughter who turned to selling her body to make a quick dollar. It's the son who has given himself over to every lust 
he can imagine. It's the father who has gambled all of his family's money away. And it's the wife who constantly belittles her husband in the presence of other. It's the kind of person whose decisions and passions have ruined themselves and everyone else around them. But even more serious than how they have affected others, their sins against God are beyond numbering. If you think that the trillions of dollars of debt in the American economy is a large number, the amount of sins that the sinner commits against God is infinitely greater. That's the kind of person being described here. And yet, despite all of this personal offense, all of this rebellion against God, Jesus says that when this sinner repents, there is joy in heaven. There is celebration. There is a party like no one has ever experienced before. Friends, that's the kind of grace, that's the kind of mercy and love that is beyond comprehension. That is the unsearchable riches of the grace of God. And that is the reason Jesus teaches His disciples in Matthew 18 that as many times as your brother sins against you and repents, you forgive him. There is not one person on this planet that has ever sinned against you more than you have sinned against God. And because God has shown us all so great a mercy at such a great cost to Himself, who are we to ever deny forgiveness to another? What kind of moral superiority do we have that would allow us to act differently towards a repentant sinner than God would towards us? John Newton, as I said at the beginning, was the kind of man who had ruined every relationship he ever had. If there was a man beyond repentance and beyond the grace of God, it was Him. But as it is the way of God to seek out such a sinner as this, God pursued him until He made him His. Newton recalled several distinct points in his life when it seemed clear that God was seeking to awaken him. On one occasion, Newton was on a ship sleeping at night. And during that night, he was suddenly woken up by the sound of a violent storm stirring up the waves of the sea. And the waves quickly started crashing over on the deck. 
And the boat was being rocked in every direction. And none of the sailors thought they were going to make it through the storm alive. And there was a lot for Newton to say this as he records it. He makes a a specific purpose to say, we've been in lots of storms before. But this one was different. This one left us without hope. This one left us in a state where we were sure we were going to die. They spent the entire evening pumping water out and attempting to stop the leaks. By daybreak, the storm had subsided just a little bit, but the men had to start using most of their clothing just to plug all of the leaks that were in the ship. And at one point, Newton said to himself, if this will not do, speaking of plugging all of these leaks with their clothes, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. And later he commented on this statement and said, this statement, though spoken with little reflection, was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for the space of many years. I was instantly struck with my own words and thought, What mercy can there be for me? As time went on, the Lord used these kinds of initial stirrings to draw Newton back to an interest in spiritual things. He began reading the Scriptures again, as well as sermons from well-known preachers. He started to see himself in the Word of God, particularly in the parable of the prodigal son. And as such, he became convinced of his need of a Savior. He even got to a point where he believed in his own mind that the Gospel was true. And that whatever need he had could be met by the Gospel. But he still didn't move beyond an interest into trust. He said of this particular time, I acknowledged the Lord's mercy in pardoning what was past, but depended chiefly upon my own resolution to do better for the time to come. It wasn't until a later voyage to Africa that Newton became the one who was lost but now found. On this voyage, he had another near-death experience. Only this time it wasn't from a storm. He became deathly ill. He describes his state as one of, of having a violent fever. And as he was on the brink of death, it gave him the opportunity to contemplate his own mortality and eternity and the Gospel, and the mercy of God. And for a time, as he was sick, he was without hope, believing that there was no mercy to be found for him. But in the midst of this weakness and hopelessness, God granted him the grace to believe. He wrote, Weak and almost delirious, I arose from my bed 
and crept to a retired part of the island. And here I found a renewed liberty to pray. I dare made no more resolves, but cast myself before the Lord to do with me as He should please. I do not remember that any particular text or remarkable discovery was presented to my mind. But in general, I was enabled to hope and believe in a crucified Savior. The burden was removed from my conscience. And Newton was found. And we can be assured that there was rejoicing in heaven. Jesus, the great shepherd, has searched, when had searched, for his lost sheep and had found him. And when he found him, when he found this hopeless Newton, he was not put together. He had not fully reformed his life. He was at the lowest point a man could be. He was a breath away from death and without hope. Friends, that's what Jesus delights to do. That's where Jesus delights to find His sinners. When all of our efforts have failed to save ourselves, then and only then does He save so that we might know that the salvation we enjoy is all of grace and not a result of the will of man. Some of you may be at this point this morning. At a point where you have a desperate need for the grace and mercy and the hope of the Gospel. Some of you may be here this morning and you have attempted to reform your life. You have attempted to repent out of the power of your own will over and over again. And you find yourself constantly entangled with the same sin. Well, friends, it's because you are doing just that. You are attempting to reform yourself with the power of your own will. What Newton shows us and what Christ teaches us is that we have to cast everything upon Him. We have to recognize that there is no strength, there is no moral fiber within us that's going to provide a spark so that our life changes. No, we must cast ourselves completely at the mercy and at the throne of God. And Jesus says, and Jesus teaches us here in this parable, that when a sinner does that, when he repents and casts himself wholly on the mercy of God, that sinner is saved. Christ delights to make something new out of that person who was known only as the sinner and the scum. That's the business that God 
is in of making dirt into a beautiful diamond reflecting His image. Would you pray with me now? Father, there are no words that we can utter that can adequately describe the depths of mercy and grace and forgiveness that are found within You. Your Word teaches us that You are love. That within Yourself, love is fully known. And Father, we thank You that in Your Word and and in Christ, we see how You view us as sinners. That we are not to be a people simply cast away, but a people to be rescued and made into something new. Father, I pray for every heart here this morning, those who know You, that they will rejoice in the salvation they have in Christ. And those who don't, Father, that the heart would be made new. And that as John Newton came to the end of himself and lifted his hands up to You that You might have mercy upon him, Lord, may that be what happens to them this day. And I pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.